Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, I, I know that we usually have a palate cleanser soundbite at the beginning of the program, but you know what? I just want to spend the, the entire episode today talking with our guest, whose book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, uh, is so fascinating, and there's so much to dig into. George Packer is our guest today. Uh, George, thank you for coming back on the Bulwark Podcast. Appreciate it very much. It's great to be with you, Charlie. You know, I was I was saying before we were chatting right before we started, and I said this was a, this was a very challenging book, and, and not challenging because it's a hard read. It's actually a very compelling read. But I I, I found myself putting it down occasionally and going, "Oof, you know what? Um, that's me. Those are things that I believed. I was I was part of that." Um, this is a book that. I think it's going to be challenging for readers across the spectrum because uh, it is not a safe space for anyone on the political spectrum, is it? It's not a safe space. I don't believe in safe spaces. I, I believe in um, respect, civility, but no ideas that are that, that come out of respect and civility and a sense of decency should be off limits. And we should all be uncomfortable. We've really, for about 20 years, we've watched our country go through a whole bunch of shocks that have left us weakened and divided and um, our democracy jeopardized. And that's a bigger failure than any one person or even any one party or group. I think it's the whole country that has failed. And so we have to look hard in the mirror. The The conceit of the book, it, it was a COVID book. I wrote it mm -hmm. during covid Really, from the election to the inauguration, it was a sh it's a short pamphlet-like book, kind of a political pamphlet. And the the idea was COVID gave us a chance to look hard at ourselves. It held a mirror up to us, and we were, those of us who were lucky enough not to have to go into a job were immobilized enough to have to look hard in that mirror. And so I wanted to see what's in the mirror. How did it get to that point? How did the face become that face? And how do we stop looking and start acting in order to get ourselves out of what's a pretty deep hole? I winced at the very first paragraph in the book, which is, I am an American. No, I don't want pity. In the long story of our experiment in self-government, the world's pity has taken the place of admiration, hostility, awe, envy, fear, affection, and repulsion. Pity is more painful than any of these. And after pity comes indifference, which would be intolerable. And that's the moment you go, boy, of all of the things that America has been, has, has faced, the world's pity. That's, that, 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 that is one where you go, ouch. Well, that's what we were facing last year, Charlie. I mean, Taiwan and Russia and the UN were sending us humanitarian supplies um, Europeans were looking at us as if to say, you know, it, it's terrible what's happening to you people. You can't seem to hold an election without boarding up your stores and arming yourselves and thinking you might have a civil war. You, you have, you're the world's leader in COVID deaths and in COVID infections. How can that be with such an advanced economy and such an uh, incredibly sophisticated health system? Things look a bit better now. The vaccination distribution has gone really well in this country, and that shows some strengths. But our underlying conditions have not changed since last year. All the the, the ills uh, that 
that COVID brought to the surface are still with us. So I don't want to imagine that um, that we somehow move past the the state that brought the world's pity. And in the end, I think pity does lead to indifference because once a country becomes incapable of governing itself, as we sometimes seem to be, um, the world will have to discount us and move on without us, even if Joe Biden is going around Europe saying America is back. Well, in the book, you divide America into four different Americas, and and I, and I want to walk through all of this because this is this is the, the the really the heart of the book. And what I was really struck by, uh, George, was was your fair mindedness in looking at each of these Americas, where you talk about the attraction, the strength, the history, the traditions behind them, but then rather piteously. Um, dismantle the flaws of each America and each one of the four. So uh, I, th- I think that, that one would describe you as, as center left, but you are merciless in your analysis of uh, across the political spectrum. Do you think that that's a fair, that's a fair comment? Merciless and yet empathetic. Or yes. Empathetic and yeah. yet merciless. That's right. That, if that's what I am, then I've I've succeeded in what I set out to do. Yeah, and, and because, I, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't I don't believe in tribes. I don't think journalists should play to their side. I don't think we should. There's, there's something that really bad has infected journalism and journalists, which is a a desire to win the support of their team and to do it by stomping on the other team. And I I really dislike that. And try not to play into it. Um, the four American narratives that you mentioned. Let me first say what this isn't. It's okay. not an ethnography. I'm not trying to portray the whole country. So a lot of Americans may not see themselves in these narratives because they are not dominant. These are the four dominant narratives of my adult life. The ones that have really controlled our politics and our culture. The first is what I call free America. Yeah, let me just set set the scene. I mean, the four Americas are free America, smart America, real America, and just America. Just being justice. Uh, young younger people, maybe you describe it as as woke culture. But let's let's start with free America because this is a tradition that that I thought I understood quite clearly. You know, Reagan's morning in America, Reagan's shining city on the hill. So let let's talk about free yeah. America because. Obviously, has deep roots in American culture and political uh, traditions. You bet, you bet. They all do. Free America goes back to um, to Jefferson and to um, the idea of of the free individual who you know should be allowed to pursue his or her destiny without an overweening government to get in the way and to tell us how to live. It came in its modern version in the 1970s as a a perfectly understandable response to government failures and to the the uh the flames in 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 liberal cities uh and the um the sense that bureaucracy had made government so distant and so rigid that people could no longer have prosperous and and free lives and Reagan embodied it, gave it its most attractive um, language, made it rhyme with the pilgrims and the shining city on the hill and the founders. And somehow in the 80s, Lee Iacocca and um, investment banking 
became the latest version of the New England town meeting. You know, it became kind of democracy personified and yet in a different form in the 80s. It became, you know, the free market, consumer capitalism, um, deregulation, low taxes, the whole menu of Reaganite uh, policy, which became, I would say, I don't know if you agree with me, Charlie, a kind of orthodoxy. Yes, well, it did. Yeah, in the Republican Party. Um, and re- remain that way and maybe remains that way today at certain elite levels of the Republican Party. Free trade, uh, a, an open policy on immigration, welcoming globalization, um, but really seeing government as mostly an impediment to prosperity and therefore something to be reduced to a limited form where it it carries out basic functions but doesn't try to um, – to dictate economic and, and social conditions. And that has been the most potent of the narratives in my adult life, by far. It has really shaped the terms of our politics uh, almost in, maybe until the last few years. Well, let me let me read you a paragraph that made me set the book down and go, oof, <laughs> uh, from page 78. The shining city on a hill was supposed to replace remote big government with a community of energetic and compassionate citizens all engaged in a project of national renewal. Yes, but you said, you're right. Nothing in reality held the city together. It was hollow at the center, a collection of individuals all wanting more. Free America measured civic health by gross domestic product. It saw Americans as entrepreneurs, employees, investors, taxpayers, and consumers, everything but citizens. And that's what I said. I said, you know, the, the hollowness at the center of it, why it ultimately didn't deliver that, that, that shining vision that we, that some of us imagined that it would be. It was hollow at the middle, and it did basically you know, take the, 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 the agrarian yeoman that Thomas Jefferson was talking about and, and replace them with, you know, hedge fund managers and a rather, a rather crass um, bottom line attitude. And did it have to be that way, I guess, is the question. My feeling is it became so rigid and it relied on a set of very powerful ideas that we call libertarianism that came from Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman um, and that seemed to answer so many of the problems of the 1970s with a, a really attractive vision of the free individual, but freedom from negative liberty, freedom from regulation, freedom from taxes. What about positive liberty? What about the freedom to participate as citizens in our common life? That somehow did not become part of the free American vision. It left that out. And uh, Reagan, it, it was easy not to see that when Reagan was giving his magnificent speeches, because he made it seem like such a um, such an encompassing and benign um, narrative, but really it had a, a darkness at the center of it. And once Reagan was gone and the Cold War was over, which also helped shape the international terms of free America, once those were out of the picture, the darkness took over in the form of, I would say, Newt Gingrich, who became maybe the more, most important political figure of the last half century. Um, and it, it became a bit nihilistic in its 
in its attempt to um, to to win political power and to reduce government to um, almost to ashes. And it did not solve the problems of most Americans. And that's the key to the failure of free America. It did not create widespread prosperity. It created unequal prosperity, more unequal than anything we've seen since the Gilded Age. And so in the end, it was bound to be challenged by a rebellion from below, from the parts of the country that had not benefited from free trade and from deregulation and from globalization. Uh, which I wrote about in an earlier book, The Unwinding. And when we get to that in the next chapter. So you have the critique, though, of what real freedom is, which I found very interesting. You said real freedom is closer to the opposite of breaking loose. This this new uh, freedom culture, the populist version of it, did not have was once known as the conservative orderly heart. It mocked self-government, both the political and the personal kind. It was riven with destructive impulses, which may explain why, as we've commented many times, the, the, the quality of the leadership has just constantly deteriorated, you know, from Reagan to Gingrich to, to Ted Cruz, from William F. Buckley to Ann Coulter to Sean Hannity with no bottom. Uh, that, that really is part of the problem is, is that the definition of freedom, as you point out, was, was, was really very limited and didn't have that kind of balance that tr uh, conservatism had had pre-1970s, for example. Right. Conservatism in its, in what I think of as its real traditional form, going back to the 18th century, is deeply concerned with the common good and with institutions and with um, the, the wisdom of institutions. We don't just throw things out because they get in our way or they're inconvenient. We, we also have an obligation to one another in a society. I mean, Maggie Thatcher famously said there's no such thing as society, but I don't think um, that 18th century conservatives would have, would have said that. And so it became kind of radical, not conservative. Very it, radical. In yeah. Gingrich's version, it became institution destroying. Um, it demonized the opposition into an enemy. It made Congress unworkable uh, with help from other, other sources. And so the radicalism of its vision of freedom left no room for, uh, for compromise, for um, hearing the other side and actually trying to understand what might be wrong with one's view. Instead, the orthodoxy got more and more rigid as the years went by, even as the facts turned against it, even as low taxes and deregulation turned out not to create wide prosperity. Uh, during the George W. Bush years, that became obvious. It was a period of low taxes and deregulation. And that was the period when um, incomes really stagnated in the, in the lower and middle classes and where income inequality just took off. So that's, that's where free America, as attractive as it seemed in, say, 1978 or 1982, by 2008, um, it, it was a, almost a cargo cult, I think, a set of, uh, um, set of mantras that kept getting repeated 
without really having much to do with people's actual lives. Well, and that's it. That is the disconnect because because of that view, you don't actually ever talk about um, results or how to solve problems, how to make things better for the public because it's all focused on what you don't want government to do. All right, let's shift to your second America. The first is free America. The second is smart America, which I think a lot of people are going to immediately recognize. This is the meritocratic class uh, in America. So how do, how do you describe it? How do you characterize it? Yeah, this so there's a kind of chronological sequence. I think free America really was in its heyday in the 80s. Smart America had its heyday in the 90s with the Clintons, who embodied it. It's all about education, rising through education to success, credentials, going to the right schools, entering the right professions, recognizing one another by your non-regional accent as fellow smart Americans, intermarrying into that same class and passing on all the advantages that come from the meritocracy to your children your work ethic, your connections, your money, your intelligence, uh, your, the books in your house, the thousands of words your children hear regularly. And eventually, what starts as meritocracy, that is re being rewarded for talent and, and effort, becomes a kind of aristocracy. You're born into it today. You don't earn it. You're born into it. It's very hard to fall out of it. Falling out of it is terrifying. So families do everything they can from test prep tutors to you know playing classical music in their little children's headphones at night uh, to make sure their children stay in this class because the fall is rather steep down into the working class. Um, so smart America has something in common with free America. It took some of the terms of free America, whether it's um, globalization, free trade, and even a skeptical view of too much redistribution and ta taxing too high. But it's a softer view. It thinks that in, for everyone to have equal opportunity, you really do need to um, have a welfare state. You need to have affirmative action. You need to have child health insurance. So it's not as uh, firm uh, a, a belief in the individual. It has more of a collective sense. But it really, in the end, is about the family. It's about... The, the families need to keep its ticket to the meritocracy intact and passed on to the next generation. And although meritocracy sounds like the fairest system, and in theory is, in practice in our country, it has become a form of social immobility, not social mobility. I came across a statistic that for a poor American child to get into one of the top Ivy League universities today is no easier than it was in 1954. That's how little we've gained in real meritocracy um, in over half a century. So that's that's the critique, and it's a pretty it's a harsh one. I'm a member of Smart America, so I'm sure. critiquing myself. Um, yeah. Well, I'm guessing many of the listeners of this podcast uh, are, are part of this or certainly recognize this. You, you have one little anecdote that is really very striking of, of a, a, during the Clinton White House, uh, the Clinton presidency, 
back in April 2000, Clinton hosted this White House conference on the new economy and Bill Gates was there. And at one point, you know, Clinton is saying that Congress is about to pass a bill for, you know, permanent trade relations with China, which would make both countries more prosperous and would democratize China, make it more free. And Clinton said, I believe the computer and the internet give us a chance to move more people out of poverty more quickly than at any time in all of human history, he exulted. And your next sentence is, you can almost date the election of Donald Trump to that moment. <laughs> <laughs> what did you mean? I think that's an exaggeration. I mean, I know. I, I mean, it is a bit hyperbole, deliberate hyperbole, as uh, truthful hyperbole, as Donald Trump would say. <laughs> um, but I think Clinton, who is a very popular and successful president, I mean, America was maybe better off under him than it's been since, but. He was blind to the forces he was turning loose and to how, first of all, how toxic the internet would become in our political discourse and also how unfair and unequal the rewards of globalization were going to be, including um, trade relations with China, which put an end to a good deal of um, American manufacturing and hollowed out whole regions of the country that had been dependent on manufacturing. And it became a, a kind of economy for the educated, for the, for the intelligent, for the professionals class. And they have really dominated our culture. And I would say the democratic party, they, sure. they are the base along with non-white voters, some non-white voters, they are the base of the democratic party, which is a huge shift from when you and I were young, Charlie, and the Democratic Party was the party of labor and the working class. It's been quite an inversion. So you make an interesting observation here that that the winners in smart America, the people who've really, you know, risen to the top, had their kids go to the, you know, right schools, get the right degrees, that the winners in smart America have withdrawn from the national life of their fellow Americans. This is what Christopher Lash once described as the revolt of the elites. So what do you mean? You, you, you describe how, in fact, they have become, you know, divorced from the rest of the culture. Is it because they are, uh, you know, just narcissistic or is it because of their cosmopolitan view that they no longer identify as Americans? They think of themselves as citizens of the world. They kind of think that patriotism is irrelevant to the global culture that that uh, that they feel most comfortable in. You've just described it. That's exactly yeah. the answer. I mean, Lash would certainly point to the narcissism in his book, The Culture of Narcissism. Um, which is a highly pejorative term and may not apply across the board. I think more broadly, yeah, cosmopolitanism, openness to the world, the, the good things about smart America. It's, it's uh, love of novelty and of diversity and of the new and its sense of, of, of borderlessness. It's desire for goods and information and capital to uh, to move quickly and easily across the world. All those things are bound to weaken the sense of attachment to a particular place, um, including to one's own local community, but especially to one's country. Patriotism for some of these Americans, I think, is a bit of an embarrassment. Uh, it's not a word you hear very much. Certainly American flags are a bit of an embarrassment, um, and they've been sort of co-opted by the opponents of the, these Americans who are mostly Democrats. And so, and, and there isn't a sense of losing anything. You gain things by becoming a world citizen, but actually what you lose 
is the ability to help shape a sense of national solidarity, hmm. without which you really can't get the biggest things done. I, as I wrote, I began to think, so what is the value of patriotism, which you either feel or you don't. It's not an idea. It's a feeling like family loyalty. If you don't feel it, what do you lose? Well, getting big things done, saving American democracy, um, slowing down climate change, ending racism, reversing inequality, the things that a lot of enlightened people care about, you don't get them done as a world citizen because that's too big a space. People don't identify with the whole globe. People identify with something a bit smaller. The biggest entity is a country. If you don't identify with your country and can't reach your country, men and women, you're not going to get those big things done. Yeah. You need that scale. You need that sense of cohesion and attachment to one another, which is something that came naturally to earlier generations. It's not as though Franklin Roosevelt was embarrassed to talk about patriotism. In fact, he turned the New Deal into a, a national narrative that included all the Americans who'd been left out, or most of them, I should say, because some were excluded from it, but most of the Americans who'd been left out of the uh, the America of the roaring twenties of his predecessors. And so that gave him a kind of high ground to say, this is what America is about. If you can't describe the moral identity you want for your country, you're not going to be able to achieve what you say you want to achieve. Instead, it, your, your own life will be extremely pleasant, but in the, in the end, you're going to have to give up on on big national projects. And I think for a while, some, some Americans, smart Americans have given up on big national projects. Well, as you also point out, the other problem is that abandoning patriotism to other narratives guarantees that the worst of them will claim it. Um, which leads us to, uh, the Sarah Palin chapter. I call it the Sarah Palin chapter, but this is in the four Americas. This is the, the real America, you know, the, the idea, the real America are these small rural towns. So let's talk about this because you, you really describe, um, the, the impact of, of, of Sarah Palin, um, rather dramatically that that you describe her as the John the Baptist to the coming of Trump, but also she was the product of what was going on in the country that the political and media elites just did not understand. I mean, this is, this is again, one of those painful moments in your book where you realize that there was this vast transformation going on in the country, and yet it wasn't registering with the smart folks who thought they had figured it out. And I would put myself in that category <laughs> that, that I didn't fully understand a lot of what was going on. But uh, obviously, this was true of the establishment of the parties and certainly true of a lot of the political narratives that, that we had, which is why Trump came as such a surprise. So talk about Sarah Palin. What is the real America and how did it get us to where we are now? I see Sarah Palin as the, the early warning indicator because she clearly represented something new in our politics. People were trying to figure out what it was, and they focused too much on her and her failings and what was sort of comical about her and what was alienating or or um, even uh, frightening about her, but not the thing she represented. I, I think what she represented, Charlie, was white identity politics, mm. uh, a new politics that wasn't just white 
people running the country, which has been true throughout our history. It was a conscious identity as a certain type of white person, namely Christian, um, conservative, but heartland. She used the phrase real America in a a talk she gave to donors. And and I think that's where politicians tell the truth is when Mm -hmm. they're fundraisers. Um, And she, she was in North Carolina. She said, I love coming to these places where patriotic, hardworking Americans are in the real America that grows our food and fights our wars. Mm -hmm. That's her vision of who real Americans are. It doesn't include me. It doesn't include black people. It doesn't include uh, big city people and coastal elites. It's a divisive vision by definition because there is a, a real and a fake America. And real America has an old lineage as in some ways all of these do. It goes back, you could say to Andrew Jackson, who spoke for the farmers, mechanics, and laborers against the bankers, but they were white farmers, mechanics, and laborers. It goes to William Jennings Bryan and the producing masses. And in a way, it goes to George Wallace, um, who set the real Americans against the pointy-headed bureaucrats um, and the effete intellectuals. Sarah Palin updated it in a more, I think, in a more aggressive way, in a more potent way, because it hit at the moment when this America was feeling alienated from right. Barack and dis- Obama. Yeah. And disrespected. And disrespected, despised, was being left behind economically, found that new kinds of Americans seemed to be entering our culture and our politics embodied by Barack Obama, who they found might have found alienating um, or who they might have found frightening. And they dug in and dug in on their identity. It's an identity politics. Free America was a politics of ideas, but real America is identity. And it's a rebellion against free America, among other things, because it, in the end, Trump rejected a lot of the orthodoxy of the Republican Party, right. at least in theory, not in so much the way he governed, but when he campaigned against free trade, against immigration, uh, even against hedge funds and low taxes on capital gains um, or carried interest or whatever the loophole was that he was talking about. So real America is a rebellion. It's It goes against the shining vision of Reagan. It goes against, in some ways, the whole founding ideal of a free and equal people. Instead, it feels more to me like the ethno-nationalisms of Europe, where uh, there's, a, there's a people who are the heart of the country the real people. And then there's the other people who are alien and who need to be kept down. And so it brought us away from liberal democracy and towards something closer to authoritarianism, which then was realized in the election of Donald Trump. The um, Of course, this message resonated because people in the quote unquote real America do feel that they are the people who are the backbone, the salt of the earth, the people who b- build things and make things. And they did feel that they were they were um, they were disrespected. There's also the, as you point out, this long um, tradition um, of, of, you know, in popular democracy, whether you go back to actually Andrew Jackson would be the best person to go back to. But brought this intellectual bias to American politics that never entirely disappeared. So when Sarah Palin pops up mocking um, and trolling the intellectual and cultural elites, 
that also resonated. That didn't, didn't just, you know, drop out of the sky. She was not a black swan. There have been people who have been doing that for generations. What, and then you describe it, what made it perhaps different, though, was the way in which the establishment and the elites had discredited themselves, you know, overseas and then at home. These, these, these dual crises, the war in Iraq, which, again, Emphasize the divisions because the smart America's kids did not go and fight in Iraq, did they? No. You know, if you, they this was a huge thing. You you, you go to a, a reunion of some of these folks, and nobody's got a kid in the army, or at least that didn't back then. And then, of course, you had the the financial crisis, which also did seem um, to n- not only reveal the way the system was rigged, but really destroyed. Trust, as you point out, the economic recovery took years. The recovery of trust never came. So those things all landed at the same time, or and we're transforming our politics. Exactly. I mean, the elites failed spectacularly. Smart Americans might have gotten us into Iraq, but they didn't bear the cost of it. Smart Americans and free Americans might have gotten us into um, the mess of the financial crisis. With uh, you know, with derivatives and um, CDOs and the the whole menu mm-hmm. of alphabet of alphabet products that were created by Wall Street, they didn't bear the price of it. No top bankers were prosecuted. Um, Wall Street recovered quickly. One Wall Street um, banker said to me that the financial crisis was a speed bump on Wall Street, yeah. whereas in the country the financial crisis was a tsunami that wiped out jobs and how homeowning and retirements. And that was when I was working on the unwinding and traveling in places where it had really laid waste to entire communities. It, it was a devastating event, uh, very close to the Great Depression in, in its scale. And yet for professional Americans for, for, or for people in the financial sector, it just didn't really have that, that big an effect. And it really created more division and showed for some Americans who were out in the heartland, they f- began to sense this is a rigged system. It's the elites washing each other's hands and feathering each other's nests. And it doesn't include me. So trust in institutions collapsed, whether it's government or business or media or even churches and um, civic organizations. And so a lot of people who I was reporting on back then seem to be living very isolated lives without connections to a community or to an institution. And they were easy prey for lies on the internet, um, for, you know, vitriol on cable news, which they might watch all day or mm. for, um, a political demagogue who, exactly intuited that they resented this contempt that they felt and this sense of the game being rigged. Trump really had a genius for finding the feelings of a lot of Americans and poking fingers into their wounds. I, I, I love the phrase, you, the reptilian genius. Yes, he, he was not, I mean, he was not a great thinker. But I love your line where you talk about what's happened to the Republican Party, because I think this is interesting that since Reagan, the Republican Party had been a coalition of business interests and downscale whites, many of them evangelical Christians. By 2010, it was like a figure in a hall of mirrors whose head and body had been severed, but continued to move as if they 
they were still attached. And it turns out that the massive Republicans were not originalists, libertarians, free traders, members of the Federalist Society, devout readers of the Wall Street Journal. They were they were people who, you know, really, you know, wanted government to do things for them. And the party elites were just too remote to get this. Media elites were just stupefied. And it was Trump who had the reptilian genius for intuiting what these people thought, which then explains, you know, where he was going, that he he didn't talk about freedom anymore. He talked about culture, faith, and tradition in Warsaw, which um, was really quite a moment for identifying which brand of the right he was going to be championing. Trump trashed democracy. Yeah. He didn't speak highly of it. He didn't use the usual 4th of July um, cliches. He talked about how my this is my generals, my CIA. He didn't believe in the separation of powers. He thought the Justice Department was his personal law firm. All of this he did openly, constantly, triumphantly, because he. I think he understood that a, a lot of his supporters had lost faith in democratic institutions and were ready to see them trashed. And when, whereas other people tried to get elected by saying how great America was, uh, including Mitt Romney, Trump understood that the way to get elected was to, to say how shitty everything was, yeah. how, how bad our airports are, how, what, how, what lousy trade deals we have. It resonated. It resonated. He understood that a darkness had begun to set in, in a lot of America. You, you describe him as unleashing a dark energy. What was the dark energy he released? Well, at its heart, I think at its darkest heart was racism and xenophobia and a really he made it okay to give vent to the the worst impulses that some people might feel but knew that they should try to keep to themselves. He just lowered everyone down to his level. Yeah. He, he took away shame. Shame doesn't exist for Trump. It's a it, it would be an impediment. So he but made, this was a big attraction the, the, that his supporters liked this. I mean, this this was not a bug. This was a feature, right? Yeah, I think if you look at his rallies, the faces of the people there are. It's not. I, I resist the term fascist because I think fascism has a much more um, coherent and in some ways positive force. It made people feel that they could do anything, that they would embark on great projects, even if those projects were genocide. Hitler inspired people. Trump didn't really inspire anyone. He made people laugh. He made them snarl. He brought them together in a kind of a cheap, um, happy contempt for the the non-real Americans, and then everyone went home. Nothing was asked of them. There was no great project. He, he never had a vision for where he wanted to take the country. And so I think in the end, it was a sort of, I think of it as like bringing Jersey Shore to national politics. <laughs> um, it was not um, exalted. And in some ways, that might have been a weakness because people do want to be called to do things to do higher things. And if everything is just about bringing it down to the level of bar talk, 
um, it's going to lose some energy. It's going to fail to bring new people in. And that's what happened to it's Trump. Happening, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the fourth America is just America, which you could have called woke America, correct? I mean, it's that's really yeah, what- Yeah, I thought okay, about- uh, Okay. I woke has become such a pejorative I, right. term that I I felt for each of these labels, free, smart, real, and just, I wanted to capture a value that it held, not to poke at it. Smart is a value, free is a value, real is a value. What is the value of younger Americans who really see social justice as the cause. Well, justice. So the only adjective I could come up with was just. It's kind of the least adequate of the four because really it's unjust America that we're talking about. Their view is that this country is profoundly and maybe even permanently mired in, um, in an unjust caste system from the beginning. I read this paragraph to my wife yesterday. <laughs> I, I got her a copy of your book, and I, you talk about this this dramatic law, this this generational change that's taken place. And you 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 dated the the transformation of the American character to twenty fourteen, and you contrast this generation with people of our generation. So this new generation had little faith in the ideas that previously that previous ones were raised on things like. All men are created equal, work hard and you can be anything, knowledge is power, democracy and capitalism are the best systems, the only systems, America is a nation of immigrants, America is the leader of the free world, and this is what you know. our generation told us, this was the story we told ourselves, this would have been my catechism of what I would have said, and you're, and you're saying that this new generation, this just America, they reject this. They they don't buy this at all. So we're talking about a real division in views of America. So, you know, a Harry Truman progressive who's think, oh, just America, that's me. That's not what you're describing in this chapter. No, exactly. And in fact, the split between our generation and theirs is as great as the split between the boomers and their parents. And in many ways, what we're seeing now is reproducing the generational divide of the 60s. It's funny because boomers and millennials these days don't seem to like each other very much, but they have a lot in common. Um, They're a big influential generation that rejected the adults as having failed them. In the case of the millennials, they entered a, a world and an economy that was constrained where their fortunes were looked kind of grim because of the financial crisis, the Great Recession, where they weren't going to do as well as their parents had done for the first time in American history, and where highly, um, widely shared viral videos of police shootings of unarmed black men uh, created a sense of absolute state of of uh, persecution of black Americans that didn't seem all that different from the days of segregation or even the days before segregation. There's like a straight line from slavery to segregation uh, and Jim Crow to George Floyd. And that's been the subject of a great deal of journalism and of scholarship and a popular culture. That is the dominant feeling of People under 40 who think of America as a place of injustice where you are, I, your identity, your race, your sexuality, your gender are the most 
important marker of whether you have a place in our society or not. And there's a hierarchy that's always existed and that exists today that is systematic, that is structural, that keeps groups down, um, whether it's by law or by uh, bias or by custom. Um, and that, and, and the idea that there's incremental progress and that even though we have our problems, we're becoming a more perfect union as Barack Obama nope. used to say. They've rejected Obama. He's not a hero because Obama believed in gradual improvement, incrementalism in the, in the increasingly mixed, fluid, interracial nature of our society. You don't hear that anymore. That was about 10 years of optimism or five years of optimism and it's gone. So a lot of this is very illiberal and very ill, Ill um, and very intolerant. And you talk a lot, and I think some readers might be surprised by this, about critical theory, because of course the right has made, um, you know, critical race theory, you know, central. But you point out that critical theory, not just, you know, race, upends the universal values of the Enlightenment, things like objectivity, rationality, science, equality, and freedom of the individual. It is a rejection of a lot of those liberal values. So that's quite of a challenge. And, and that explains when you understand this, why there, you know, the, 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 the culture of cancellation, I'm not sure you use that term, but, you know, places like the New York Times, where if you run the wrong piece, um, you are fired or the editor of a poetry magazine that writes, a, you know, that, that, that does a poem that doesn't have exactly the right message uh, gets fired. I mean, this is really um, just give me your take on the role of critical theory right now, because I, I, I think that the right is exaggerating it in many ways, of course. but it's a real thing and it is profoundly illiberal and a challenge to a lot of the values that we have taken for granted. The right is exaggerating and the left is denying. Yeah. And this is a, this is a dialectic we see all the time in case after case where each extreme drives the other into a more and more unreal position so that there, the actual reality that most people see around them it disappears. So yes, critical theory is not a mortal threat to the republic and it's not as though the work of Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and other scholars of the 80s is it has suddenly become a tyrannical new in, indoctrination in in throughout our schools and our universities. However, I mean I'm close to this stuff. I went to these schools, I learned some of this in school, I've read some of it, I've talked to people. Those ideas were powerful ideas as you describe them, anti-enlightenment ideas, or at least ideas that challenged um, the liberal complacency of uh, people who thought of themselves as uh, enlightenment believers. Instead, it saw those words as forms of oppression. Equality and freedom could be ways in which dominant classes oppressed uh, subordinate classes and kept them down. That's basic to critical theory. It looked at the subject and the experience of the subject as the key to um, to oppression, rather than just at material conditions, the way Marxists used to or socialists used to. All of these things came out of some French philosophy, some German philosophy, some American uh, academic work. It became a kind of orthodoxy in a lot of universities, especially in the humanities, and almost an instinct. Yeah. People who don't even know what 
the critical theory is about use its terms or abide by its dogmas out of simply having absorbed it from the atmosphere. It's very powerful. It gives people a sense of being seen after maybe spending a lifetime of not being seen. It gives them the sense of power because you can fight back with these weapons. Uh, but it does have this illiberal um, – it's not a, a, a bug. It's a, it's a feature. It's, it has an illiberal quality that sees – the exchange of ideas and the um, the old idea of fighting it out in the realm of rhetoric and language and ideas as being hostile, a hostile environment in which people are not welcome. I'll give you one example from recently. the The editor of the Journal of America of the American Medical Association was fired because not he, but someone connected to the magazine said on a podcast that socioeconomic conditions are more decisive than structural racism in, yeah. in replicating disadvantages. To me, that's a t completely debatable. Yeah. It's point. an idea. It's an idea. And it's an idea that maybe a generation ago, a great sociologist named William Julius Wilson devoted a whole book to, this was not something off limits, but today it's off limits in a lot of just America. And it, it worries me not just because it's illiberal and is eroding the values that I think are essential to a democracy, but because it won't work. First of all, it will alienate a lot of people who don't want to be told what they can and can't think and say, who don't want to be told right. that they are simply a member of an identity group, who don't want to have their individuality erased. And in terms of so politically, I think it's a dead end. And in terms of policy, it also is going to fail because it refuses to look at a lot of facts that are unpleasant and unhappy facts, but that have to be faced in order to solve the problems. And instead, it kind of erases them with sweeping language um, that makes us feel as if we're getting to the heart of the matter. But in fact, this systemic criticism usually ends up with just very small gestural politics, not actual, the kind of politics that changes our, the conditions of our life. So that's my quarrel with Just America, even though I'm, I'm really deep, deeply sympathetic to the project of, uh, of equality, which is what it should be about. This is what rattles me, though. But at the end of this, I'm looking at free, smart, real, and, and just America and, and seeing the not, not hope, but the, the real power, the centrifugal power <laughs> behind these divisions that, that, that all of the trends that we're seeing are accelerating and driving us further and further apart. So your book was titled Last Best Hope, and, and the last best hope is us because nobody's going to save us, right? So it's the American people who have to recommit themselves to self-government but how? How do you overcome this, particularly when so many of the people in these various Americas hate, despise, look down upon, or want to silence people in the other Americas? That's the big question for the book and for all of us. And the answer to, to make it as brief as I can is twofold. The key words in the book are equality and self-government. And I think they're connected. Equality as the passion that Tocqueville said most characterizes us Americans. We want to be as good as everyone else. We don't want to have a second class status. We want to be equal citizens with equal opportunities and equal status. Of course, we've never achieved that. We failed spectacularly, but the passion 
the desire for it drives us to this day. And I think inequality, which we see so um, so deep and so wide today, is at the heart of a lot of these ills that, that we're talking about. So on the one hand, I think we, we need policies and politics that make us closer to being equal Americans. There's a whole long list of them in the book. They're not at all original with me. And they're all very hard because our politics is so blocked. But the other side of this is self-government. Without greater equality, we don't feel any sense of shared citizenship and self-government collapses. We are no longer capable of governing ourselves. That became clear to me during the pandemic. Something as big as that is a test, and it tested us as to whether we could take collective action. We couldn't. It divided us in all the the ways we know. Self-government is not natural. It's been a blip in the great history of humanity. It takes, it's an art, as Tocqueville said, it's a set of skills. It's an ability to debate, to listen, to come to knowledge based on facts and on evidence, to compromise, um, to be patient, to take a long view, um, to resist the, the quick victories that come on social media and in Washington. Um, and we have to learn it. We've lost it. And there, I have a bunch of ideas on that too, also not original, but I felt like I had to put some cards on the table. If we can begin to move toward greater equality and in doing so, restore some skill of governing ourselves, then the temperatures might go down. We're not going to resolve our differences. We're not going to love each other. Um, but the vitriol and the almost existential uh, hatreds and sense of threat might reduce enough that we can actually begin to solve problems. That's my last best hope. Uh, it's ca- I call it equal America, and I um, I see us going in that direction slowly and fitfully in some ways. But I'm quite worried because I think our democracy is still on the line and could very easily slip away in the next few years. The book is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal by George Packer, the National Book Award-winning author of The Unwinding, staff writer at The Atlantic. It is an incredibly challenging book. It will make you think. I know there's been a lot of books written during this particular year, but I have to say that this is one that I found coming back to again and again, uh, George. Um, and it's really, it is, it is thought provoking. It is challenging. Um, I would put it in the list of the must reads for going forward now. So thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast. I appreciate it. George Packer. Thank you for that, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.